Welcome to today's edition of the Career 100 Podcast. Your host, Felicia Gopal, founder of collegefundingresource.com, will be interviewing professionals each week that are currently working in one of the top 100 careers for 2011. This series is designed to introduce students to different career options that are in demand and share the path each practitioner has taken to arrive in their current position. We want to expose you to the varied and distinguished careers of our guests and to perhaps inspire you to consider following in their footsteps, or better yet, blaze your own trail. So sit back and relax as Felicia interviews professionals about how they came to be in the top 100 careers. Hello, it's Felicia Gopal here from the Career 100 podcast. I'd like to thank everyone for joining us and welcome you to today's podcast. Today we're going to continue exploring one of the careers that's listed as one of the top 100 careers. It's a career that many of us as children had considered going into, but for whatever reason, many of us did not follow it through. So I'm going to be very excited to have our guests talk about whether or not this is something that you wanted to do as a youngster and then continued on and pursued. Our special guest today is Dr. Don Cardwell, who is actually my daughter's pediatrician, and she's going to be talking to us about becoming a general practitioner, and she'll tell us a little bit about how pediatricians are part and parcel of the medical distinction general practitioner, and I think that would be very good information. So I'd like to welcome today's guest, Dr. Don Cardwell. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Dr. Cardwell, as I said, is my daughter's pediatrician, and she has been for the last five years. She received her undergraduate degree from Brown University and her doctor of medicine from Columbia University, and she's been in private practice in South Orange in Guiding Hounds Pediatrics. Dr. Cardwell, it's my pleasure to welcome you to today's call. Thank you very much. Great. So when I was researching this particular career field, I was thinking about general practitioner in terms of Marcus Welby, MD. I'm really dating myself by saying that, but, you know, kind of the general doctor who goes out into people's homes and deals with their various different ailments. But when I started to research and put together and think about this particular podcast, I realized when I went into Wikipedia that a general practitioner is really a medical practitioner who treats acute and chronic illnesses and provides preventive and health education for all ages and sexes. So my definition in my mind was not a really good fit for what a general practitioner is. So could you tell me a little bit more about becoming a general practitioner pediatrician and how you became a pediatrician, please? Okay, so you're correct. Back in the days, a general practitioner was a family practitioner, someone who took care of humans from birth to death. And at some time along the line, they realized that general practitioners would typically, or family practitioners would typically concentrate in certain areas, maybe just the children, maybe just the adults, and then possibly just OBGYN aspects. So that general practitioner title has split into a few. One, the internist, which deals with adults from 21 and above, maybe even from 18 and above, the pediatrician from birth to 21 years of age, and at times the OBGYN physician is also included as a general practitioner. Some people may even include a general surgeon as a general practitioner. I am a pediatrician. I am considered a general practitioner, and I see children from birth up to 21 years of age. 
The primary goal is to basically obtain history from a family, perform exams, obtain specific tests to arrive at a diagnosis and a treatment plan that specific for that patient. We serve as home base. We develop the relationship and hopefully the trust of the family, the parents, as well as the patient, definitely. Number one thing that's involved with general practitioners, pediatricians in particular, would be preventative medicine. That's high concentration in our field to avoid a disease state and its complication. That's generally what we're trying to do. So I heard you say a couple of different things. One is that a general practitioner as a pediatrician is really a lot part of your role is to assist with preventative care and maintain the health of children between 0 and 21 years old. But you also said that there's also an element of trust which I can really attest to because I was one of those parents that when I had my children, you know, interviewed various different pediatricians to make sure that I felt comfortable with who they were and I looked online for their credentials and all the rest of that sort of stuff. And I can imagine that trust is a big factor in not only maintaining your practice but also developing your practice. So did you always want to become a pediatrician? Or a doctor yes, of that answer, Yes, yes. I give a lot of interviews. I go to a lot of career days at schools and elementary schools up to high school, and that question always comes up. I wanted to be a pediatrician as early as fourth grade. It's something interesting enough. I did not particularly have a great relationship with my pediatrician. I can't even recall. I can see a body, but that's about it. I was very fearful of vaccines, and so my image of the pediatrician visit was vaccine. So I had a lot of anxiety around my pediatrician. I don't recall a great experience. I don't recall laughing with my pediatrician. I recall that if we needed to do this, and that was about it. For some reason or another, somehow I evolved, and I realized that I love kids. I enjoy being around kids. I have this certain bond. I relate well to children, babies up to teenagers. And I've learned to understand parents more as far as why they're very anxious, why they're nervous and worried, why they need to be able to have some type of trust with the person who's taking care of their child. Their children at times can't even speak their concerns to their parents. So they need someone who may be able to figure out more easily what's going on. If they can't speak, then I need to know some basic things as well as some other things that the parents don't know, things I pick up from med school, things I observe on my own, things I get because I am a mother myself, that I can then come to a better conclusion of why this child is doing whatever issue, crying all night long. The parents have to trust that I know what I'm doing, that I've been trained well, that I'm still receiving training, even new information of what's going out in the medical field, and that I understand what they're going through because... I may have gone through those experiences, too, which I have. So trust is important. There's so much out on the Internet, and parents have access to so many things, things they shouldn't have access to, and they <laughs> have to now make a decision on their children's well-being, their, their care, and that's difficult. And they do come to me with basically fear. What do I do? So they have to have a, at least a trust that I'm going to steer them in the right direction as far as, what decisions they should make for their children. So trust is important, especially as a general practitioner. Trust is very important. You spoke to a couple of different things. One is the fear factor, because I remember my youngest child in particular 
was terrified of shots and going to the doctor. I don't know if you remember, but it used to be whenever we went to the doctor, there would be the crying even before she went into the room. And then, you know, you're trying to get her calm enough so that you can examine her for whatever issues that we were in. So, you know, fear and trust is a very critical factor. And I could really speak to the fact that one of the things that you have been particularly good with over the five years that we've been with you is you've been really good about helping bring that anxiety down for my daughter such that it used to be that we would surprise her with going to the doctor, which I didn't particularly care to do as a mother, but because otherwise I would have, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes of crying about the fact that we were going to the doctor before we even got to the doctor, plus there was the crying in the doctor's office. You know, as a mother, it was hard to take. And so I could definitely speak to the fact that you've definitely been able to help us alleviate that. And I appreciate the fact that you also keep current. Certainly, that's one of the things that parents are very, very interested in because of all of the availability of information on the Internet. Oftentimes, you know, I would imagine it'd be a little bit hard to take because we find out about thus and such, and then we're wondering, does our kid have thus and such on the Internet? It's just like, you know, they've got this particular symptom, this particular symptom, and it means that you have this particular symptom. And oftentimes I can imagine it is not true. Or do you find that parents are coming in with a lot of information from the Internet and it is also impacting your practice? Oh, most definitely. Anything that hits 60 minutes or 20-20, forget about it. I I will have messages on my machine immediately, especially around the immunization situations. It's a definite. And basically, the physicians have to get together as far as figuring out how we deal with this. Because sometimes these are new things that we don't even know about. So, But we still have to calm our patients down, things we do know about. And try to figure out a way that everyone's going to handle this. We're sometimes waiting for the big guys, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the AMA, to come to us, the NIH and the Center for Disease Control, to get us the information so we can help. And they're pretty good at that, at sending us um, emails and trying to get the word out to us, sending us phone calls, say, okay, get ready, this is what's going to happen, and this is what we would recommend that you show, advise your patients or give these websites they can refer to if they want answers to some of their questions. So, yes. Again, I'm a parent, and I, too, go through the Internet very calmly when parents say they've heard of this type of treatment plan for something that we generally do one other plan. I make it a point, and my parents are very comfortable coming to me and saying, Grandma said this is an actual treatment plan for whatever. And I said, well, give me that website. I'll hit it. As soon as they leave, I will go and turn on the computer in between patients or after hours and look up and see what's going on. Review it myself to see if I can easily confirm that this is a pretty good idea or, okay, because of this reason, this paragraph, and this paragraph, you may want to sit back and look at this or get more information about this treatment plan. But as a parent, I've looked at 60 Minutes in 2020, and, and I say, whoa. Now, if I wasn't for the fact that I've been to med school, I would be freaked out by now, right now. <laughs> and because of this, the medical school always advised their medical students to make sure that your children had their own doctors. You should never be the doctor of your niece or nephew. You should really make sure that you may be a consult part of their care, but you should not take on their care. Because if I were my daughter's pediatrician, yeah, everything and anything of this little lump 
I may just be a parent, and I know a lot of things more than what a parent may know. And, yeah, you can get freaked out. Instead, okay, this is a little, may cause me to be anxious. I'm going to make an appointment with their pediatrician. We'll go through it together and help me bring it back into the professional mode and pull it out of the mother mode into the professional mode and we look at it in a professional manner. So, yeah, I understand what parents are going through, and I hope that because of my interest in alleviating anxiety and fear, that they are benefiting from being in my practice and that the whole family in general is benefiting with my presence well, and, and my assistance. Mm-hmm. You know, I could definitely only speak to myself, but I feel that I have gotten a lot of benefit from being under your care. So let me just kind of step back and ask about when somebody is interested in becoming a doctor in general, is there a recommended major in college that they should pursue? Before I entered med school, which was in 1986, I'm certain there were recommendations that you should major in the sciences, biology, chemistry. I actually majored in chemistry in college, and that's because I love chemistry, believe it or not. My father was a high school teacher, chemistry teacher growing up, and I actually enjoyed it. But in college, I did note, and I saw also upon applying for medical schools, they were really interested in those who did the non-science. Mind you, you have to do pre-med requirements. You will definitely need to do the sciences and mathematics, physics, things like that. But you can major in other things, theater, English. They're open to bringing in people with different backgrounds, different likes. It makes for a more interesting person to speak to during the black tie events that occur in med school and beyond. So, yeah, nowadays you can major in something else. You can major in business. That's really pretty cool if you can get a business major as well as fulfill your pre-med requirements. That's pretty good and interesting resume or application when you're applying to med school. Absolutely. I could Mm -hmm. definitely see how having doctors who've got backgrounds in different specialities or different majors could bring a certain something to the medical profession. And I think it's interesting that that's the direction that med schools are going into. So let me ask you, what do you like about being a pediatrician? Oh, many things. I say many times when I'm in the office and I'll pick up a baby who's sitting there just looking at me and saying, oh, I love you. And I say, I go turn to parents, I have the best job, don't I? Don't you wish you had this job? I'm lucky, right? I just love it. I can sit there and cool with them. And this is part of my job as well as examining them and going through the whole process of giving the care. But it's something I get to do, and I love it. I love it when I finally reach a teenager who definitely was giving attitude at the beginning. Oh, I love this. At the beginning of the visit, and they're giving major teenage adolescent attitude. And I get to help them break down these walls to get to them and find out exactly what's going on. And they walk out of my office saying, hey, I mean, they're excited. We can talk now. I'm getting information. The parents are looking at me like, whoa, it's not magic. You just got to be patient. You have to be firm and let them know this wall is not necessary. I'm really here as your advocate. I'm trying to help you. And by the way, I recall what it was like being a teenager. It's not easy. So I do recall. So I understand. And this is why your mom and dad are responding this way. This is why your teacher's responding in this way. So I'm not there just to deal with their human body. I'm there to deal with every part of their life, their psychosocial issues. I mean, that's what a pediatrician is there for. And what's required from a pediatrician as far as time and the number of patients we have to see to actually support our practice, there's generally not time for that. But somehow or another... Somewhere, somehow, I do my very best to fit in what is required for a well-child physical, but the psychosocial is very important. I want my patients and parents to walk out that they had a full visit 
and were not rushed, and all the questions were answered. I could see that that would be great. You get to be an advocate. You know, one of the things that I really particularly appreciate about our doctor's visits is that oftentimes, and I think that's what you were talking about with preteens, is you're able to elicit responses outside of the yes-no kind of responses that I'm starting to get from my preteen in particular. You know, you're able to ask more questions, and I can tell that she appreciates being asked the questions, and she appreciates answering the questions without whatever it is that mothers inject into our questions when we're asking questions. So I can definitely see that you are definitely an advocate, and I can see you doing that in your role. So I know that the test that you would take is the MCAT. Could you tell me a little bit about that particular test? Well, the test for medical school is called the MCAT. And, wow, I don't know why people or high school students are fearful. Well, what's the MCAT going to be like? MCAT is taken during your final year. I believe I took it at the end of my junior year, beginning of my senior year in college. By the time you get to that point of college, You've done quite a bit in your pre-medical requirements. Pretty much all of them are pretty much completed. And if you've done halfway decent, you to definitely want to pass. You want to do more A's and B's, you should do fine with your MCAT testing. At that point, you've gone through all the, the tests you need to get into college. The MCATs are pretty much just going to show the medical school what you've learned in college. So they're not, they're difficult. They're a long test. But if you did well in college to begin with, you should have no problem with your MCATs. Okay, okay. Besides, there's well, tests I... coming up after the MCATs are more difficult than the MCATs. <laughs> Once you get to well, residency, you know, the boards are a little bit more complicated than the MCATs. Well, I was going <laughs> to ask the question. So what happens? Uh-huh. Okay, so you go to med school, and then are you done? Are you now in Well, a, you have all uh, the exams na- that are in med school. There are quite a few exams that that med school is giving you. But after med school, then you go into your residency program, and there's a the board that you take. There's a first board that you take after completion of your internship. That's the first year of residency. And then after you completed your full residency, which can be anywhere between three to five to six years, depending on what you decide to specialize in, there are the boards. And the boards are pretty serious. They could be two, some places, three days of full-day examination. And they're pretty intense, and they want to make sure you know what you're doing. So they're important. They are definitely important. Studying for them actually helps you to get your life together as far as how you're going to manage a patient on the table. So they are important, but they are pretty intense. Mm-hmm. Okay. And after the boards, you get re-aborted sometimes every seven, depending on what you specialize in, seven to ten years. You have to take those exams over again. Just so that you as a patient know that your doctor's staying abreast of what's new in medical field, and they know the general stuff, too. Okay. So that's why we do it. So there's the residency, which you said can take three to five years, three as enough. well mm-hmm. as the, is the internship before the residency is the first year of residency. Internship okay. is the first year outside of medical school. Okay, so you do so after a, you get your MD, you go into internship year. Mm-hmm. You do an internship, and that's the first year of residency, did you say? Correct, yes. Or is it something sole and different from your residency? It's the first year. It's considered your first year of residency. The internship is very important because 
sometimes some people leaving med school still do not know exactly what they may want to specialize in. So that internship year helps you. So I can do an internship year. It could be in the same internship program of pediatrics with someone who may end up going to surgery. But they're doing that internship to see if maybe I want to do pediatrics. I don't know yet completely. During that internship year, you get the basics as far as procedures, how to deal with patients, deal with your bedside manners and obtaining information. So you will see people who have gone to a pediatric internship that will go on and complete the pediatric residency or may take that and go into psychiatry, take that and go on to surgery, go into internal medicine. It all depends. So that internship year can be used for other residency programs if you decide to jump over to another program. So it's the first year of residency program, but you can actually make a decision towards the end of your internship. I actually don't want to continue with peds. I want to go and do adult medicine. But that internship year counts towards your residency. Mm -hmm. And after you've been in the profession for a while, then you have to reboard, and you said that you would do that every seven to ten years. And what that does is it helps you stay abreast with what's going on, and it also seems to address the issues that parents would have, especially from the pediatrician, that you are keeping up with changes Mm -hmm. in the industry. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So let me ask you, why do you think that being a pediatrician is on the top 100 careers for the next decade? Well, there's always a need for a pediatrician. There's always a need for an internist. We are responsible to do general acute care and to develop a medical relationship with our patient. If we do a good job, if we do a good job in preventative medicine, it may keep people from going on to requiring a subspecialty care. So that role will probably be around for a while. Even though the Internet has a lot of information for parents in general, you still need to be able to figure out what's the good stuff, what's the true stuff, what things you really want to take a chance with or not. And that's where we come into play. So that job will be around for a while. So that's probably there as far as being present. As far as the top 100, when the market falls, pediatricians still have to exist and still work. So the medical field is still necessary. So that's probably why it's for the top 100 careers. It doesn't mean you get paid very well as a general physician, but you can make some form of income to support your family. Okay. So I'm going to take off from that last question. Do you think that one of the reasons why being a pediatrician is in the top 100 is because of the changes in how people consume their information, or is it also because people will always be having children and that's one of the reasons why it's in the top 100 careers? There always will be need of pediatrician to take care of children. So that's probably the reason there. Anywhere you go in the country, there will be a need for a pediatrician. Certain areas may not need as many. There may be a large concentration of pediatricians, like in this area, but Somewhere in the country, there will be a job for you. You may have to search for it, but you will have a job. If you lose a job somewhere else in the country, you can pretty much move around and find another job. Okay. All right. So if someone wanted to become a pediatrician, where would you suggest that they start? First, of course, you have to go to self-ready. We're talking about a child coming through. What do they need to do? They have to get serious about doing their schoolwork. They have to be serious about prioritizing their lives. You got to get that schoolwork done. You need to get good grades. You need to look for good grades and to not just get the good grades, to understand the material you're taking in. So uh, that has to start early on. And I would say by the time you hit high school, 
you pretty much know I'm looking for as high as possible. And from there, it's just applying to colleges, and everything has to be decided upon early on. Many people have gone to college not even knowing that they're interested in becoming a doctor, and they hadn't touched the pre-med requirements. That would be chemistry, physics, algebra, calculus, things like that, and may have to do an additional year after college to meet all those pre-med requirements or two before they apply to medical school. So you can still do that. There are people who were, I know someone in my pediatric internship year who was an investment banker of all things, and he left. He left and went into med school. So you can still make that decision later on. We see people doing that, and that may be more for job security that they're looking for, and that's why they made that change, or just less pressure. Maybe that's why they sought out the medical field. So that's pretty much it. Getting involved with children, knowing that you can deal with crying kids, that would be important. So if you can volunteer at a hospital, volunteer in a daycare, babysit your niece or nephew or your cousin, you all got to know that you can deal with crying kids. That's one. But you also got to know that you can deal with upset parents. That's two. And that you can somehow or another get to them and understand and relate. So those are ways to move towards a pediatric profession. Is there any organization of pediatricians that perhaps somebody could check out their website to get some more information about becoming a pediatrician? Sure, definitely. Many people would know of the American Academy of Pediatrics, and that would be www.aap.com, and laymen have access to parts of that website, too. All right. So if you wanted additional information, you can go to the American Association of Pediatrics, check out their website, and that would be a great place to start. As well as I always suggest that students who are interested in particular career fields, especially when they're in high school, should perhaps consider talking to their guidance counselor if there's an opportunity to maybe shadow or at least volunteer in an office. I know that there was a student that I was working with who got the opportunity to volunteer at a hospital so she can kind of get a better sense of what nurses, doctors, the medical professions did inside of a hospital. So there's lots of different opportunities, so if you're looking for additional information. Dr. Caldwell, I'd like to just really thank you for being on the call with me today. If somebody wanted to get some further information or if they were looking for a pediatrician in the South Orange area of New Jersey, how would they get a hold of you? Well, they could definitely come visit me. My private practice is called Guiding Hands Pediatrics. It's been in existence since 2003 at 179 Irvington Avenue in South Orange, New Jersey. Zip code 07079. The office number is 973-763-3314. And I would love to take on new patients and families. All right, so this is Dr. Cardwell. Her practice is Guiding Hands Pediatrics. If you wanted to get a hold of her office, you can call 973-763-3314. All right, Dr. Cardwell, I thank you very much for being on the call with us today. I think you gave us a really great sense of what a general practitioner does, especially in the role of a pediatrician, and thank you for your time. So I just want to... Thank you for inviting me. So to learn more about the college planning process, I invite you to visit our website at collegefundingresource.com. I also encourage my listeners to keep coming back to listen to more of our podcasts. At College Funding Resource, you'll be able to listen for free to guests like Dr. Caldwell who have valuable information to share. If you receive some value from this podcast, please visit our iTunes channel and vote and review it. I'd appreciate it. 
In addition, I just wanted to let you know that the Career 100 podcast is now available not only in iTunes, but also in BlackBerry Podcast, Stitcher, and in Zoom. For people who have listened to our previous podcast, I just want to do a random plug for friends and family of James Walton, who was a high school principal who has a fan club on Facebook who left a number of complimentary remarks on his podcast. And I want to give a special note of thank you to Jacqueline Kelly, Tony Bond, Shawnee Barlow, and Tanya Dice. Thank you for stopping by and reviewing James Walton's podcast with us. And I want to thank all of my listeners for joining us today, and I hope that you will join us again on the next installment of the Career 100 Podcast. Thank you for listening to today's edition of the Career 100 Podcast. We hope you'll join us again for our next podcast, where we'll continue to interview experts in the top 100 careers for 2011, giving you the insider's view of their chosen profession. If you'd like more information about planning and saving for college and to instantly download your free copy of College Funding Resources Report, Five Strategies That Parents Need to Start Using Today to Cut Their College Costs Tomorrow, visit www.collegefundingresource.com. That's www.collegefundingresource.com. This is Kathy Davis for the Career 100 Podcast.